0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower
1: workplace rights. And today we're really excited because we have a good friend and another NILA code board member, Gail Schnitzer Eisenberg. Gail is the head of the recently formed employment law practice at Loftus and Eisenberg Limited. Gail works a range of employment disputes ranging from race, gender, and other forms of workplace discrimination, harassment, and retaliation. Before joining Loftus and Eisenberg, Gail worked for Stolen Friedman at Denton's and as a staff law clerk to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. She has also taught appellate advocacy at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Gail also has received quite a few honors and accolades as an attorney. She's been named by leading lawyers as an emerging lawyer in their employment law ratings. Gail has also been recognized by super lawyers as a rising star in employment litigation for every year since 2017. She was also recognized as a rising star in class action litigation. Gail was also in 2015 named to Chicago's Jewish 36 under 36 list by the JUF. In addition to her legal accomplishments, we are also lucky enough to be talking to an elected public official today as Gail was elected to the New Trier Township Trusteeship Board in 2017 on a four-year term and was recently elected as a supervisor to that exact same board. She also sits on the Administrative and Government Affairs Committee for the JUF, co-chairs the Legislative Committee of the Decalogue Society of Lawyers, serves on the Quality Jobs Council for Women Employed, on her school district's community review committee, on her synagogues board, and as a Girl Scout Brownie leader, and on the triage cancer legal advisory board. And she serves on the March of Dimes North Suburban Leadership Council and Illinois Government Affairs Committee. And lastly, but certainly not least, Gail received her MA and BA from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and her JD from Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Gail, I think you have officially set the record for the longest, most impressive, and most titles achieved by any of our guests to date. Welcome.
2: Well, I'm embarrassed because I'm sure that you've talked to some of the, some really amazing attorneys. I'm learning a ton from everybody at Nela.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. I mean, we're doing this on a Saturday, so that's appreciative. We also, I also make it so Max has to read the bios, and then I pump in as much stuff as possible. So I enjoy this component of our interviews.
1: And and, and to that end, I think you deliberately wrote Gale's in the most confusing, passive voice and in uh, infused manner possible. So I vomited all over it.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed that. How much coffee do you drink, Gale? Because, I mean... That, that bio is absurd.
2: <laughs> Substantial amount. Now having my own practice, I, I have to buy the coffee. and it's a business I
0: expense, right? It's
2: a, it, it is. I'm not doing a great job at, at the expensing. But well, yeah, me and Costco are getting, are getting well acquainted on the coffee aisle.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Well, before we get into the weeds of sort of what you do in terms of your practice, you made a a big move recently. You went from a well-established, impressive firm in Chicago Stowell Friedman. Before that, you went from the appellate court to an international law firm at Denton. So you've sort of run the gamut of different types of litigation or just experiences you can have in employment law. What is it like having all these different, drastically different employment experiences?
2: I think it gives me um, some perspective that maybe not everybody has, you know, I'm able to think about a case from both the, both the employer side and the employee side, you know, think about how I could go through the entire litigation in order to try to best serve my clients. So, you know, I'm able to now that it's just, it's me, my husband and another partner, and we're, we're able to be nimble and really serve their interests as best we can, but we have enough people that we can um, litigate when we need to.
0: So what's it like working with your husband?
2: It's actually great. And yeah. not, it's not even just that I work with my husband. We work in the same room. How have you not
0: <laughs> murdered each other? That to yeah. me just seems too much.
2: It's, it's great. I think it really gives us actually more respect for each other's practices. You know, I'm able to see how hard he's working. He's able to see how hard I'm working. You know, he's very persuasive when I'm hearing on the phone, we get double privilege. That's great. So, you know, we get that benefit and uh, we get to have our, our two children as our paralegals. So I will say you get what you pay for on that one. So
1: are they at least responsive with phone calling clients back on phone calls and whatnot? Or are they pretty
2: they do steal our phones often and that's that's when I'm so glad that we founded, you know, the firm during this technological period because I'm able to get my all my my calls come through my computer. So if they steal my phone, I'm fine. But yeah, they've they've learned that, you know, if it's if it's a three one two number, you hand it over.
1: <laughs> Mommy gets the three one two calls.
2: Basically.
0: So what's been the most challenging part about, you know, opening up a firm, creating an employment wing in the start of or during a pandemic?
2: You know, what's what's nice is that I haven't had the experience of not opening a firm during a pandemic.
0: Sure, you don't <laughs> so know what you don't know. I don't know what I don't
2: know. And all I can say, it's probably been better because everyone's working from home. No, you know, no one expects me to have you know the fancy office with the standing desk and you know the intimidating long conference. So it, I think it was the perfect time to start a new firm. So I'm really, I'm really glad we finally made the jump. I think, you know, the pandemic really brought to light that you know you can't put off to tomorrow what you can do today. So that's what we're doing.
1: I think we've heard a lot of that. That there were. Uh... People who were unhappy in their situation before the pandemic, when you have the camaraderie of coworkers or you're seeing different people every day, maybe you can kind of bury that stuff. But when you're staring at the same four walls and you kind of have to wake up and every day is the same as the last, you better like what you're doing.
2: Well, absolutely. And I'm certainly hearing that from clients as well. Yeah. So I guess going
1: back to those clients, then, what, you know, you've had these varied experiences. So, I suspect particularly at the appellate court, you see a lot of different types of cases. So what brought you to employment law specifically?
2: I actually always knew I wanted to do civil rights law, and I just did not know what that focus would be. I knew I had this concept of doing impact litigation and just took every class in law school related to you know justice so i you know while everybody else was taking corporations you know i was taking gender and children in the law and sexuality in the law and psychology in the law and everything i could do and i never took employment law (laughs) (laughs) just it didn't come up so and obviously some of it was intertwined in the other classes but it didn't and i was prepping for a potential clerkship so that always you know helps you go into any kind of litigation that you might go into. You know, learning evidence and administrative law and, and federal jurisdiction. And so when I went into the seventh circuit, I was a staff law clerk, which I like to call, you know, the real people cases, because it's often cases that don't have an attorney on both sides. Sometimes you're on one side, not the other it's people's social security um, appeal. It's their direct criminal appeal. I did six months just doing habeas corpus review, you know, and, and it was a lot of employment law. So that was really my first real exposure. And it was always employment law that went wrong somewhere, <laughs> or at least some sort of problem occurred in you know, in the district court. And, and I'm hoping that I use that skill to try to avoid those pitfalls.
0: So when you say something went wrong, you mean procedurally or?
2: Either something went wrong procedurally, or at least the, the clients think the, the, the plaintiffs thought something went wrong and, you know, you want to make sure that, that you're, you're always you're always counseling your your clients with the end in mind
1: i'm sure that gives you a big picture perspective because not only have you seen it from the employer and the employee side having worked on both the management and plaintiff side you've seen it from not not just the judge's perspective but the appellate judge looking at the job the judge and the plaintiff and the defense did so you 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 don't just have that 360 degree angle of the case you kind of got a big picture view from above that most haven't had
2: it was just fabulous. But then when you get back, you know, my first time in, in big law heading to Denton's and no one hands you the binder anymore with the record, you have to create the record. That's very frustrating because certainly is, you know, new attorneys will probably know a lot of that is document review. And it is a lot nicer to just receive all the, all the pertinent documents than a handy record.
1: <laughs> no,
0: I'm, I'm with you on that. I, and I think the point you made about the end of mine is a great point because I'm assuming you're. When you're a staff clerk for the appellate court, you're working on cases that are about five, six years after at
2: mm-hmm. least the
0: wrongful act.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most shocking things that I think clients or potential clients, you know, when they, when I'm talking to them realize is that litigation's is long. Uh, you're living with oftentimes very traumatic incidences for years on end. And, and that, that continues to, to victimize many people.
1: We talked to Catherine, our our Nila's board president, in one of our earliest episodes, and she described this awesome decision that she won on behalf of, I think it was Lydia Vega. And that case is a decade in now. I mean, and it's still not entirely resolved. I mean, you're talking Mm -hmm. 10 years. I mean, we're talking we will have had three presidents in the time that the Vega case has been litigated. So
0: we've had two different recessions. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) two different recessions. And, and actually the first time I met Catherine was helping to moot her on that because of how close and really collegial the, the NILA community is and, and plaintiff side employment litigation.
1: That's, that's a great segue actually, Gail, because so ideally our listenership is made up of not just lawyers and hopefully our NILA colleagues listening in and learning from each other, but we're hoping to have some non-lawyers listen to us too, and that we can kind of educate the public a little bit or, or those with an interest in this sort of thing on on how what we do for a living works. You know, and so to that end, one of the things we like to cover when we have fabulous litigators like yourself on is to talk about the different various buckets of employment law, sort of what's mm-hmm. out there. And and we've covered a lot of different topics here. So within that your experience what's unique about some of the work you've done is not just representing individuals in in employment discrimination cases but you've done class action litigation and you mentioned impact litigation before so why don't you can you give kind of the the layperson view of what what class action litigation is why that's different than representing a person
2: sure and and i certainly consider and i think most most class action at least in the employment area would consider there there's alre- there's always a client, right. you know, the named, the named plaintiff is always, you know, starts off often as an individual. And as you dig, you might realize that there's a whole number of people, whole class of, of people who are harmed in a similar way, either by a similar process, policy pattern, you know, in ways that perhaps they might not even realize. I think a lot of people, you know, can't see the forest through the, for the trees. So, you know, you have one client who comes to you with a discrimination matter and you start realizing that there might be more to it. So oftentimes that means we get, you know, one, one client and we, we find that there's a policy that had impacted them, that had made them put them into a, a worse position than those outside their protected class. If that number of people outside the, in the protected class is more than 40, it can make sense to come together and litigate those common issues in one, in one matter. We're able to then use discovery that's class-wide, and oftentimes that means using statistics to prove the discrimination happened. When you're able to use, you know, certain analyses to show that, you know, if, if, if it's not chance... And if it's not chance, it's more likely than not discrimination, and that can be a very powerful tool, especially when, you know, very few people are very are overt with their discrimination nowadays, (laughs) thankfully.
1: So, so you take like a hypothetical, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I didn't get this promotion or I got fired or I didn't get this job. And I think it's cause I'm of a certain race or I'm this religion or I'm transgender or, mm-hmm. or, or for something about me that I don't have any control over just it's who I am.
2: And mm-hmm. you
1: start looking into it and you start digging and what you kind of uncover. And I guess if I'm interpreting what you're saying, right, is it's not just, Oh, this didn't just happen to you. They haven't, promoted anybody who looks like you or has this religion or anything right
2: exactly and yeah and and obviously you you start with the pattern evidence in an individual's case and that pattern might become much larger statistically significant so
0: so in these cases is a smoking gun less an email or a quote from like a manager but more so the statistics then
2: absolutely and I think a lot of companies are often shocked when they see their own statistics you know they a lot of companies put a lot of effort into their diversity initiatives into their into their what's called uh, employee resource groups and they think they're doing a good job they win awards they you know they've got this recognition or whatever but then when you look at the numbers and thankfully a lot of big corporations keep great statistics then you find out that you know maybe they're more likely to discipline an african-american for the same for the same behavior you know five times more likely than than a white man you're able to see that that a that an African American might be you know have might um, be terminated or burnt out of the of a company you know within one year and and while white employees are able to thrive and continue on in their trajectory so there's a lot that that the data can tell you.
1: When you do class action work like this, when, you know, we've talked to people about what it's like to represent individuals and you were talking about maybe the discovery you do. So the investigation and evidence gathering throughout the case process is done on a group basis rather than an individual. What are some of the challenges or what are some of the major differences other than the obvious you have 40 or more clients versus one to, I guess, 40, you know, what, what are some of the challenges and differences in, in that sort of representation versus single plaintiff or, or, or Mm non-class work?
2: Well, a major difference is the class certification portion of, of, a, of a class action matter. So you do have to you know, prove at an early stage in the litigation that there are these common issues and that your first plaintiff, your named plaintiff, is, is typical of those class members. So you know, it, it, a lot of the earlier part of the litigation process in a class action is proving that you just fit into that mold and, and, can, can, and can continue forward. Because in some class actions, you're able to litigate people's rights without them present. And therefore, we have to have a lot of procedural safeguards so that we can ensure that, you know, their interests are being adequately represented. So often, you know, that means in, in, in classes that have to do, especially with money, you usually have to give them notice of the class action. And you also have to give them an opportunity to opt out. You know, these, are, these are people's lives. These are very personal matters. And some people need that moment in court, and that's their right. And you know, no one wants to take that from them. But, you, but many times when I'm talking to a class member, an absent class member, we call them, who didn't bring their case alone, they might not even have realized that these forces were working against them. You know, they were just too busy fighting the good fight and trying to put their head down and keep working. But so often I talk to class members after, you know, after a settlement or when we're trying to distribute funds in a, in a common fund and they they have a eureka moment and they would never have brought the case themselves because they did not realize that they were up against these systemic barriers.
0: So where in the process do you do the class certification? Is that after you've done some? maybe discovery, is it early in the game, is it later mm-hmm. in the game?
2: It's usually pretty early in the game, but that's, you know, obviously relative in these long,
1: right.
2: <laughs> in these long cases. Decade-long
1: cases, yeah. in these
2: decade-long cases, yeah. It's, you, Usually there is some discovery that's specific to class certification before they open it up to liability and to damages. So a lot of times in these class action matters, they're, you know, they are separating the discovery out and even sometimes separating liability from damages, which is in the case, a lot of the cases I worked at Stolen Friedman, where, you know, the, there was a policy or practice that was impacting the entire cl- class the same, but how, and so therefore the statistics showed it was, you know, they were likely to have been discriminated against as a class, but how much they were discriminated against and what their damages are, that's going to be an individual decision. But the, if the common issues predominate, <laughs> you can, you can go ahead and have a monetary class.
0: How is the charge process different? Cause typically for mm-hmm. an individual, you have a limited amount of time to go to the agency to file a charge of discrimination. How does that play out when you're doing a class action?
2: Oh, still have the same EOC deadlines on that on that first plaintiff on that named plaintiff. So oftentimes, if I have a feeling that there's a class issue, just from the anecdotal evidence um, that we're hearing so far, or oftentimes because we have. A pretty hefty group of individuals so not yet 40 perhaps but maybe five who have eerily similar discussions with us we'll add in a paragraph basically saying that this is representative charge you know certainly it can grow out of that and a lot of especially the eoc's class actions you know i can't imagine those those plaintiffs would have had that kind of language in it you know and But the EOC is in a place where they can say, oh, we've gotten six charges on this and they're all eerily similar. And that's really, to me, their most important function is to be able to see those patterns.
1: How often do they actually catch that sort of thing? Because I mean, I I think- it's common. You'll see cases where you get involved on an individual basis and you find out you're not the only, you're sort of not the only shark in the water. There are other attorneys pursuing claims against the same company or, or, or maybe not even that, but other individuals have filed charges of discrimination or are alleging misconduct, but you know, it's maybe a few or a handful and it does it, you know, 99.9% of the time, it's not resulting in the EEOC taking on a class. Is that something you see frequently?
2: Not, I mean, you can't take very many, it can't take very many cases, you know, just by, by structure, you know, in, it, it can't. But yeah, it, it is interesting because recently I had, I was talking to a potential client and I said, did you know that your company just settled with the EOC in a class on a similar discrimination? Now she wasn't a class member. They didn't have to notify her. But it kind of gave her a moment of, oh, see, I, I'm not crazy. <laughs> like something was going on there. And she had, she had no idea that this company that she was, that actually had, had purchased her previous company, you know, had been, had been um, under investigation for, you know, years before they had finally had a, a consent decree.
1: Well, that's why companies fight so hard, I think, to keep confidentiality in these cases, right? Why these non-disclosure agreements after you settle a case? I mean, class action is different, right? Because there are notice requirements, but mm-hmm. in any individual case you settle, like those things are ironclad. They really do not want word getting around that there's potential liability here.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but of course, it's. I always, you know, tell my clients like, it, oftentimes now, especially after the Workplace Fairness Act here in Illinois, you know, they They said yeah, it has to be confidentiality is supposed to be the the plaintiff's stated preference. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But oftentimes you can get it limited to the to the agreement itself. And that and because of the other aspects of that act which require you know judgments to be to be to be reported to the IDHR and you know it requires it, the IDHR can ask for settlements for 5 years like that allows them a lot more tools to find those those patterns than ever before even though i'm not you know i don't think that the confidentiality issue you know the, that it was really doing much <laughs> yes, um, but I think those reporting could it has a, it has potential. The, the reporting to the IDHR has a lot of potential,
0: for sure. And I think the the Transparency Act also requires certain disclosures of, hey, you can still make a report to EEO IDHR. Nothing prevents you from making reports of unlawful practices.
2: Absolutely. And oftentimes, if I've already filed an EEOC charge and the matter is coming to a resolution, you know, at, oftentimes a, an employer wants us to request the withdrawal of the charge. But The DOC has, has the ability to say no. <laughs> they can continue the investigation. They can decide that there's something there. And also, you know, if, if there is a language like that in the settlement, oftentimes the, the plaintiff has only waived their right to recover monetarily, and they can continue with those governmental charges. That's a good
0: point, too. So, you know, a lot, obviously, from a class action standpoint, one bucket you could get is money. What are other remedies you sometimes push for or see in these types of Title VII class actions?
2: Absolutely. Because it's often a, po- a policy of the company that is impacting The class in a common way. You know, injunctive relief can be very powerful and important to the class. And actually, there are certain class actions that that's the main focus. It's changing the policy, enjoining a practice. In those kinds of cases, you actually don't need, you don't have the same procedural safeguards. There isn't that notice and an opportunity to opt out. But oftentimes, it's both. A lot of the class actions that I've worked on, you know, have both an injunctive component and a monetary component. You know, you want to work. Work to change the system for those who came who are coming after you and that is super important to most of our to the name plaintiffs to leave their workplace in a better place than it was but also it's important to those to those uh defendants who don't want to see a repeat in a few years um especially since they're usually under some sort of monitoring for a few years at the end of at the end of the class action so yes it's it's changing those policies often getting a monitor often getting training especially for managers so postings is one that shows up a lot as far as people's rights being people need to know about their rights in order to actually effectuate them. So merely that. And sometimes it's really it's a separate pot of money for for training in order to remedy to the past discrimination as well. So specific uh, mentorship or specific training for people who had previously been harmed by these practices.
0: So how are how have these types of cases changed over time? And I guess what I'm really trying to reference here is the 2010 Supreme Court Walmart v. Dukes decision and just for our listeners who, you know, don't want to read Supreme Court decisions on a Saturday afternoon, That was a case in which three employees tried to file a nationwide class action lawsuit against Walmart alleging employment discrimination. And the court, using some of the terms you've talked about today, commonality, typicality, stuff like that, had determined that there were just too many individual questions for those. So how has that case kind of changed employment law class action cases?
2: right significantly at least at least it, it seems like it has but it, it really was just defining what the commonality meant it was always there so really so after dukes you need a, you, know, you need a glue that holds the entire class together and a policy or practice can often be that glue so those kinds of class actions are still here i think people are a lot more wary of nationwide class actions um, you're a lot less likely to see that more likely to see regional regional type uh, type class actions or even to a particular a particular warehouse or a particular facility. Also people are m- much more careful to ensure that the class members are in the same position. so not just you can't you know you shouldn't have managers and those they're managing in the same class for instance. so it, it certainly made people more wary and probably has cut the efficiency of of class actions, as at least at least how they used had they had been, but to the benefit of ensuring that there are these common questions that are are best for for resolution as one.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think part of the problem in that case, at least, was you had three folks trying to represent 1.5 million people.
2: It's a lot of people.
0: It's a lot <laughs> across the country, across you know every region, facility. The efficiency point is interesting to me too because I you know let me know what your, your thoughts are. I actually think the efficiency probably hurt the employer, because now what you have is a lot of either regional or individualized lawsuits all across the country that are still going on.
2: Oh, absolutely. And that the new version of that is, you know, post Epic, Epic versus Lewis, where they were saying, you know, you know, these class action waivers and mandatory arbitration agreements are valid, even in, you know, now we've we're learning that now it's even in civil rights matters, though, I, I still stand with RBG on that one. Um,
0: (laughs) I think it's a footnote in that case that's amazing about wage stuff that I encourage everyone to kind of read if they want to spend 20 minutes on a Saturday reading a Supreme Court case.
2: But yes, if you can't have class actions and you make them too difficult to bring, you're just going to end up with thousands and thousands of individual matters, you know. Especially if you're paying and often in arbitration, the employer's paying. So, yeah, I think Uber um, is
1: regretting this out in California. It,
2: I think so. I, I think mean, Chipotle
1: I- got hit pretty hard with that. There was a wage and hour article I read about that a few years ago where they had won a decision saying that their arbitration class waiver, you know, the mandatory arbitration agreement and the class waiver was valid and then ended up running back to court to to get reversed (laughs) because they got hit with so many individualized arbitration FLSA claims. They were like, oh my God, what have we done? (laughs) Yeah, for context for listeners. So a lot
0: of the arbitration rules require the employer to pay for the arbitration costs right now. And so if you have a thousand person class or collective action, that's one lawsuit in front of one judge. Well, if you force everyone to file individual claims, now you have a thousand arbitrations that you got to pay for.
2: Yes, and you're taking your, 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 executives out of, you know, being productive. It, there's a lot of costs to the, to the, to the company, you know, in my opinion, they should want to move forward and both sides should want the sufficient adjudication of these common issues.
1: <laughs> but I think from their perspective, it's easier on a one-off basis to, to just Cause remember, they don't have to prove anything, right? You just got to poke enough holes in, in our, as the plaintiff side's case to, to knock, you know, basically to create enough doubt where we can't win. I'd much rather if I'm them, you know, be fighting off Mm -hmm. a one person discrimination case where I can show, yeah, this person's a minority, you know, falls into this category as a racial, ethnic, gender-based minority, but yeah, they didn't get the job, but it's not, you know, like that's not the only reason or like there are these other reasons and it's a lot easier to kind of poke holes in one case than look Mm -hmm. at a giant page of statistics that show you just don't promote African-Americans at your company, you know, and and, and defend that, you know, so from that perspective.
2: You know, I, I certainly have argued that, you know, statistical analysis should come into individual or multi plaintiff cases, but all too often it doesn't, you know, either on, you know, some disproportionality of discovery argument or something like that. And, it, and it, it is, it's hard to prove these discrimination matters as an individual. And we know it's happening, but we've got to make sure we can, we can get to a jury.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's the other aspect of this is how many of those 1.5 million people are actually going to file individual lawsuits, get a attorney, et cetera.
2: Absolutely, especially working people. You know, in I, I don't do a wage an hour, but oftentimes, you know, the the amount of loss might not be great in absolute terms for each person, but to that person, that's a huge amount of money, but they can't take the time off of work to to pursue it.
0: Yeah, that's the great thing about class actions from a plaintiff side is you can combine, you can minimize the cost and combine a bunch of folks into one situation to make it a lot more efficient. How did you end up into this type of stuff? It's, you know, very complex and interesting. It seems fun, but it also is like a very difficult path to get into.
2: Well, I kind of fell into it. So I I had worked, I had interviewed Son and Shine, started SNR Denton, worked at Denton's, left Denton's Stutching at the largest law firm in, in the world. But going in at, as a litigation associate, the first thing I was put on was a class action. So anyway, as you mentioned, you know, it was a lengthy class action that had been around since before I would gone to college. And only just settled i think a year ago so so that was my first that was my first introduction into class action work and it was certainly at the micro level looking at particular documents you know looking literally going through people you know file folders you know i think i found one that said you know oh look women can now keep their jobs after marriage so it was old school discovery and So when it was time for me to find that civil rights job that I'd always wanted to do, and I learned about Stone Freeman, it seemed like a good fit um, with that class action experience since they had really been doing these kinds of giant class actions in, in civil rights work for decades.
1: So switching gears ever so slightly to kind of tie back the individual plaintiff discrimination and class discrimination, you know, there are a lot of arguments we see pretty frequently in response to what we bring as plaintiffs' lawyers in terms of discrimination claims. A lot of defenses, you know, you talked about statistical evidence and I'm kind of chuckling because it, it feels like every single EEOC position a statement I see or IDHR position statement always begins with, look how diverse our company is statistically. Oh, yes. But there's another one that we see a lot. It's, uh, I guess, technically it's called as the equal opportunity uh, harasser defense, although some of us have different names for it. What, what <laughs> is that defense, Gail?
2: essentially, the employer is often trying to argue, oh, yeah, maybe this person was horrible to your clients, but they're really horrible to everyone. They're an equal opportunity harasser. It's not because they're Jewish or <laughs> it's not because you know they have young children. It, it's just because he's a horrible person. <laughs> and that's not illegal. And I feel like that comes up so much too often. And we as a society are, are way too ready to say, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like that shouldn't be okay. And you shouldn't be so apt to admit that he's a horrible person, but it had been a way out of liability for, for a long time. Cause you had to prove that the discriminant, that the adverse employment action was because of a protected class. And if they're treating men and women equally horribly, well, what, and that's, there's nothing there. But oftentimes I think we're seeing now, It's a matter of, of how horrible they are. Um, There are levels of horribleness and you can usually tell, and now and courts are starting to recognize that where a, where an employer is bad to everyone, but, but in a different way, in a, you know, in a quantitatively different way to a particular class, you can still make out a, a title seven violation.
1: It, it, those cases are always really interesting too, because if we're talking about harassment, hostile work environment cases, you know, they run a certain playbook, both directions. Every case is different, but you're going to see the same types of patterns in discovery. You're going to hear your client was a bully and was actually the real meanie here, or they were bad at their job, even though they worked here for 15 years. But what's unique about cases with that defense, right? Is that it's the one time where anybody will ever say anything bad about the employer. Cause on the other side, Mm -hmm. it's always like, Oh no, this is this person that, you say, you know, exposed himself every day for a week is actually the nicest person who's ever worked at this company. Oh, yeah. In these cases, you have affidavits from employees saying, no, he called me an SOB too,
2: right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's his thing. Um, <laughs> he just doesn't wear pants.
0: Um, <laughs> he has our office, Harvey Weinstein.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, but what the Supreme Court recently, you know, pointed out in both in Bostock is that these are individual claims. You know, it's not about you treated some women OK, and therefore, you know, there can't be gender discrimination. An individual can be discriminated against because of gender, you know, absent, even if a man is also discriminated against because of gender, or even if he's treated poorly for not for a reason that has nothing to do with gender. So, you know, I, I'm really excited about some of the language that the Supreme Court had been has been using in more recent cases.
0: Well, I never up a good point, too pre that decision, I would get calls from folks, especially in other states where the Human Rights Act may not protect Mm -hmm. sexual orientation, where you'd have managers just flat out saying, hey, I don't like you because of your orientation, because you're gay, you're an LGBT. And that was potentially an actual defense in some states.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it was so scary to, you know, Seventh Circuit, where, where we practice, did have a decision, you know, a few years back that made it clear that the, that Title VII applied to sexual orientation. But before that, you know, Illinois had its law that said you can't discriminate against people because of their sexual orientation. But in the same circuit, you know, if I were in Indiana, I wouldn't have had that protection. And it was, and it was certainly upsetting. You're, you know, you're, you're, human dignity shouldn't matter where you are what what state you have what state you're in and you know what the state flower is it doesn't matter so yes it's it's really the most acquisitions been very exciting on that as well but it was also kind of an interesting it it kind of illuminated that you can't that sometimes legislation's not the way to do it because for years advocates have been trying to get an end of non-discrimination law passed um through congress and they couldn't and you know there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of them have to do you know with homophobia but they they would had to use the courts and as lawyers we certainly give ourselves a pat on the back and feel like oh we did the right we're in the right we're in the right profession when that kind of thing happens
0: yeah who would have guessed there would have been a textualist
1: interpretation of title seven guessed- <laughs>
2: Love it. Love
1: it. <laughs> Gail, so we're going to spring a couple questions on you now. Anything you want to plug? It can be NILA related. It can be charity related. It can be personal. It can be firm related, related to the government work you do.
2: So in my, my pro bono hat, my pro bono world, since becoming an, um, a practicing attorney, I've been representing young, young people who are trying to effectuate their well-informed mature decisions to have an abortion without notifying adult or adult family member. Illinois requires you to notify an adult in order to receive medical care only for abortion. Every other kind of medical care, go ahead. You can have a baby without notifying an adult family member, but you cannot have abortion care, even if it's a medical abortion, which is a pill. So f- since 2014, I've been representing clients in those matters for, cause in order to avoid having to get, having to tell your family member, you have to have a judicial bypass. So you have to go to court file a petition get to court so you know, imagine yourself being 16 usually during the school day getting to court you know go through security go upstairs go to a judge and tell the, some of the most personal aspects of your life to a random, often male you know, judge who has no, does not know anything about your life experience. And you have to prove that you're either well-informed and mature enough to make this decision for themselves, or that telling an adult family member is not in your best interest. And I'm a part of a movement to try to, to, try to repeal that law. And we've been trying for many years, but this year we have a shot, you know, the, the new speaker in the general assembly had Chris Welch had been the main sponsor of the, of the repeal legislation. And we have some fabulous advocates who are working on ensuring that these young women and young people who want to access abortion care can without undue burden, especially since it take, it can take like, it can take, you know, 10 days for you to go through this whole process get the bypass. And you have a very short period of time where you can, you know, elect between a medical abortion and a surgical abortion. And being able to make that decision that you don't want an invasive procedure, that can be huge for a young woman who's already in a traumatic um, period of their lives. So, you know, these, these bypasses have been ineffective They've been costly. Everyone pretty much gets one if you go through the process, but I'm worried about those women and who don't, who don't go through the process, who see that they have to get, they have to go notify their parents or go to a courthouse and they decide I'm going to take some drastic measures. And I've certainly talked to the few who have come to us after trying, you know, some, some of those measures who thankfully turned out okay, you know, trying to find herbal supplements on the internet. Or trying to you're trying to take an entire bottle of aspirin. And I worry about the people I don't see. So I'm hoping that we can repeal that law. And I hope that our listeners will contact their state rep and their state senator and ask them to be a co-sponsor on the repeal of parental notice of abortion.
0: We'll put that in the show notes. I mean, that definitely should be repealed. That process sounds terrifying and it seems it's like terrifying. it would create a huge chilling effect on just getting appropriate medical care, which is not in the best interest of anyone or public policy.
2: Absolutely. These are decisions that should be made with your doctor, not, you know, pushing the decision away from a medical per, uh, professional and into the home where oftentimes a young person might have very different views um, about what's right for them than their than their family members.
1: Or, or force them into a back alley to do something that might be really unsafe, you know, into some really, you know, out of fear of a family member's judgment or, or lack of permission or anything like that.
2: There are some horrible stories of what happens. The Human Rights Watch put together a a very comprehensive report on the human rights violations that occur because of parental notice of abortion, and you can hear some of these young women's harrowing stories.
0: Yeah, I mean attorneys are, I know young attorneys who the first time they go into court are worried about that experience, and I can't imagine doing this when you're 16 and going through this, uh, experience generally, it's just yeah. So that law definitely should be repealed. So thanks for your work on
1: that too. Yeah, that's really wonderful, Gail. So to then take a hard turn from that into something much happier. I'm at your up, man. Yeah. So <laughs> at the end of each episode, we try to do a shout out
0: of the week, and so or episode. It's really just someone you want to promote because they're doing great work. It could be a book. It could be a movie. We've had someone shout out their kid. We've had someone shout out a TV show they're watching. Just some type of positivity, given we're still living in a world of pandemic.
2: I think today I'll shout out Josina Morita, who's a Metropolitan Water Reclamation District Commissioner. And she's been pushing for a mama caucus of elected mothers across Illinois. And we're having our, our first caucus meeting coming up. And I'm really impressed. Um, with all her work to try to bring people across the state together, bipartisan, nonpartisan, to see, you know, to help moms and babies. And and because when you help moms and babies, you're helping all of Illinois.
0: That's awesome. No, that, definitely shout out moms. I find moms incredibly impressive, mostly because I can barely feed myself. Like I eat meal replacement drinks a lot most of the time, let alone being able to feed another human being
1: or two or five.
2: Oh, they'll yell at you. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: Hale, if we want to find you, if anybody wants to locate you and ask you legal advice or talk to you Mm -hmm. or just learn about you more, where can they find you? My
2: website is myemployeeadvocate.com. And I'm always happy to talk to people and, and just discuss what's going on in their workplace.
1: And we'll 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 make sure that your contact information is in the show notes. Gail, thank you so much for making time for us on short notice on the weekend and for your expertise. We've had so much fun getting to know you and working with you on Neela Illinois board and are really lucky to have you on. So thank you so much.
0: Our podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.